I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker today. Dr. David Hartman is joining us from the university just up the road here at Southern. He is a professor of applied theology, and I had the privilege of taking two classes from him. Uh, one required, he's the only one who teaches that one, and the other one I chose to take it from him uh, amongst other options. Um, it was a joy having him as my professor. I learned a great deal from him, from his experience in ministry. Uh, you can read, there's an insert in the bulletin that gives a little bit of a bio about it, so I, I'm not going to cover that. I wanted to share a little bit about my thoughts of him. I, I, first, met, I first met David Hartman. You were working, it was in the ministerial department in yes. Kentucky 10. Yes. Um, so he was in the ministerial department in the Kentucky, Tennessee conference while I still lived at Lexington, so I got to meet him there and observe how he went through a pastor hiring and leaving, and so we kind of knew each other, and, and I thought it was, uh, I thought I recognized his name when I saw him join the professor roster at Southern, and then, of course, when I saw him and we, met, you know, introduced ourselves to each other again, that was, that was, of course, confirmed, and so now it is a joy to have him not only as a former professor, but now as a colleague and a friend in ministry. Uh, I, I am glad that he accepted the invitation to be here, and what impresses me the most about him is he loves Jesus, and he wants everybody else to love Jesus. That became very apparent in, in my conversations with him and the classes that I took and his approaches to it. Um, when you are a student, you appreciate the professors that... Yes, they want you to do the work, but they also care very much that you know the Jesus whom the work is about. And that was the impression that I got with him, is that he cared more that the students knew Jesus than that they just had hard work and long papers, et cetera, et cetera. So there was, it was a double blessing. It is, it is my privilege to introduce him. Uh, he is going to have our message this morning. You will be blessed. And then again, this afternoon at 1.30, he's going to share uh, from his experience in ministry on practical ways of witnessing. Amen. Can I have a word of prayer for Please. you? Right. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you have been a part of Dr. Hartman's life and ministry, how you have led him and how he has answered that call to follow after you. So now, Lord, I pray that you would uh, use him as your mouthpiece. Speak through him so that we might be blessed uh, with your words. Uh, bless him with the presence of your Holy Spirit. Fill him with your love this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you. It is a real privilege to be here, and I'm glad that my wife Judy is with me as well. She's my better half, always has been my better half. Judy, would you just stand up and say hi? All right. We have two children. We have a 35 and a 33-year-old, and we have just had our fourth grandson born into our family uh, last night, two weeks ago. So we are blessed with four grand boys. I could have my own Pathfinder Club, and we... <laughs> And we'll get out and do some of that uh, camping, backpacking that Pastor Aaron talked about. Feels good to be in a church pulpit. I'm used to standing up in front of a, a class of 30 to 60 students. And God has called me to that. This is the uh, fifth year that I've been at Southern. Prior to that, I was a pastor for 24 years. 
and then I was ministerial director of Kentucky Tennessee Conference and evangelism coordinator for nine years and um, got to travel to all of the churches in our conference. We had 110 churches and companies in the Kentucky Tennessee Conference, so I got to preach in every one of those churches through the nine years I was there, and it just feels like I'm back on the the sawdust trail again, doing doing that, being with you. You have a beautiful sanctuary. I have uh, I'm Facebook friends with Pastor Aaron, and I've noticed the pictures. Now I can come and feel it and experience it. God bless you for stepping out in faith and taking on a project like this. This is absolutely awesome. Uh, Aaron, I can't believe it's been two years since you graduated, and uh, Heather, I think you graduated about a year later. So both of you are out in the workforce now, three lovely boys. We're just so happy for you all. Before we open God's word, let's uh, pray one more time. Lord, please speak through me. Please share the burden that you have on your heart. Send your spirit to inspire us in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was young, I dreamed of finding buried treasure. During my elementary years, I was down on the Emerald Coast of Florida, Pensacola, Florida. Just about 15 miles from where I lived was the long, thin barrier island called Santa Rosa Island. And I would claw in the sand dunes. I had read books by Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, Treasure Island and other books like that, and I just knew that I was going to strike a treasure chest and bring up that gold bullion, and I was going to be a rich young man. Never found that treasure. Treasure has driven men for centuries to go on great search of it. People like Hernan Cortez, Hernando de Soto, Francisco Coronado, all traverse the new world in search of gold. Coronado actually tripped over the, great, the Grand Canyon in his search for gold. More recently, Mel Fisher. He was looking for the Spanish Galilean, a sunken vessel, the Atoka, for 18 years. Every morning he would wake up, he and his men, and he would say, this is the morning, boys. We're going to find her today. 18 years of searching, and finally they found the Atoka. He was willing to sink several million dollars into that exploration search project because he knew that that which he was searching for was worth far more than a few million. And we have been down in the, uh, the Key West and seen the museum there. We have seen the gold bricks that came up from the Atoka. But this morning I want to talk about searching for a different kind of treasure although we would like to strike gold, wouldn't we? A different kind of treasure. Let's take our Bibles and look at Matthew chapter 13. This has already been read as our scripture reading, but we are going to park right here as well as look at several other passages to take a look at this pearl of great price and what is its application for our life today. Matthew chapter 13. Let's read verses 45 and 46. Matthew 13, 45 and 46. By the way, this chapter 13 is a treasure chest. 
There are more parables of Jesus found in Matthew 13 than any other place in the Bible. Seven rich parables. And this is right in the heart of that treasure chest of parables. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a what? A merchant seeking beautiful what? Pearls. Who when he had found one pearl of what kind of price? Great price or value, went and sold how much? All that he had and bought it. That word there, that one pearl of great value, is a compound word in the original language. It's polytumos. Polytumos. Poly means many, great, much, and time means value, worth. It's the same word found in John chapter 12, verse 3, when it talks about Mary buying that spikenard ointment, perfume, and anointing Christ's feet before he was crucified. She spent her life savings on that perfume. It was of great value and great worth. Same word used. You know, it's interesting, before cultured pearls... You know, they introduce little grit into the pearl oyster now, and pearls are, you know, dime a dozen, so to speak. But back in the day, back in Bible times, divers would have to plunge as deep as a hundred feet and feel around on the murky bottom. They didn't have scuba tanks back then. They had to hold their breath a hundred feet down. Can you imagine groping on the bottom of the ocean, finding three or four pearl oysters, stuffing it in a little sack, and back up to the surface? <gasps> it took roughly 10,000 pearl oysters before they found one gem-quality pearl. Can you imagine the repeating that process? Imagine the risk. That little guy with the dorsal fin, I wouldn't want to mess with that shark. Or barracudas, or decompression sickness, or drowning. All of these things, they risked so that they could find that pearl. In fact, pearls were so rare that they were the most valuable commodity in the ancient world. More valuable than gold, silver, or even diamonds pearl of great price. This pearl was so valuable, what was the merchant person willing to give to secure it? Verse 46, he sold all that he had and bought it. Can you in your mind's eye see Mr. Merchant Man searching the world over for this pearl of great price? I can just imagine in my creative mind's eye, he goes to Istanbul and he's at a fashionable bazaar and he sees all these tables laden with fine silks and emeralds and sapphires and rubies and so forth. And there he sees it on this table, the most beautiful pearl he's ever laid his eyes on. Perfect symmetry. I mean, without defect. Perfect luster. And he says to the grizzled seller, how much? You know, they had a bartering system back there. So this Mr. Merchant Man began to take rubies, sapphires, emeralds, diamonds out of his pockets. He clunks it on the tabletop. 
Not enough, sir. So Mr. Merchant Man goes and empties out his bank account, cashes out his Roth IRA, sells his fleet of cars, his yacht on the Mediterranean, his livestock, they all go, his mansion gets put up on the market and is sold, his investment properties, his Fortune 500 company, and Mrs. Merchant thinks she and the kids are next. Everything goes to secure that one pearl of great price. Now, I'm a curious guy, and you're curious too. What on earth could that pearl symbolize that would be so valuable it requires me giving up everything I have to secure it? Any ideas? Now, this is the teacher in me. Turn to someone next to you. What do you think that pearl represents? Everybody now, turn to someone next to you. Take a moment. What do you think that pearl represents? All right, you got that locked in? Uh, someone, someone, what do you think the pearl represents? Now, I am deaf. You need to really shout this out. What do you think the pearl represents? Anybody? Yes. Jesus, I love that answer. Yes, ma'am. God? Okay. Hey, you know what? It's the young people that are raising their hands. Adults? These guys are on it. All right, way back here in the corner. What is it, Judy? Salvation. I love that. And then one other hand here. Who else had their hand up? Okay. Yes. Love? Us. Us. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful. All right. We are actually going to see that it represents two distinct things, at least and maybe encompassing all these things. Uh, I've actually done research on this, and I found that the word pearl is not mentioned a single time in the entire Old Testament. It's mentioned nine times in the New Testament, and it does not say definitively exactly what the meaning of the pearl is. So I got my commentaries out, as every good student of the Word does. I took out Spirit of Prophecy and... Man, things began to open up. Okay, so first of this double meaning, who said Jesus? All right, you got it, girl. The first meaning of this pearl, it symbolizes Jesus or Christ. Picture that perfect pearl, perfect symmetry, pure white, glowing luster, free of any defects. What a fitting symbol of Jesus and his perfect righteousness and we're told that we are to seek Jesus with all our hearts right can you think of a Bible passage that suggests we need to seek him with our entire hearts look back in the Old Testament Jeremiah Jeremiah chapter 29 Isaiah Jeremiah chapter 29 
And let's read verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13. Many of you know the promise in verse 11. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I love that promise. We're going to talk about witnessing this afternoon. One of the things I like to do whenever Judy and I go out to eat, I always on the little receipt, you know, I pay with debit card, and on the receipt, I always write down, thanks so much for the great food and the service. God has big plans for your life. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. You never know what those kind of little witnessing things will do. But two verses below that, here is the verse, verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with what? With all your heart. Does God play hard to get? You know, I'm aware one time there was uh, a young man that was convinced that this young lady was going to be his bride. And he pursued her with vigor. But she was not convinced the other way. She wanted to get away from this guy. And uh, finally, he, he gave up. You know, for any relationship to work, it has to be two-way, right? God always seeks after us. He always comes after us, looking for our heart, looking to build a relationship with him. But it's got to be a two-way street. That's why God is inviting here, you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I am so thankful that God invites me to seek him. And last week, God reminded me again, urged me, David, I want you to put me first in your life. I want you to seek me with all your heart. We need to be like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, who was reading the scriptures diligently and urgently crying out to heaven, Lord, give me light, give me understanding on this suffering servant in Isaiah 53. I don't understand. This man was so in earnest about receiving light that God tapped Philip on the shoulder, a deacon who was holding evangelistic meetings up in uh, Samaria, and said, Deacon, you're needed down here on the road leading to Gaza. And I believe it was like Star Trek. Scotty beamed me up. I mean, I don't think he had to walk, you know, two days to get down there. This guy was in earnest and wanting light this second. And there is Philip. Are you, can you understand what you're reading? That's the earnestness at which we should be seeking God and truth and his word. We should be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who searched the scriptures how frequently? Daily to see whether these things are so. Leland Wang was a great revivalist in China. He was the Moody, the Dwight L. Moody of China. He had a self-imposed rule that he lived by. No Bible, no breakfast. Woo. I'm a guy, I like to eat. I gotta have my breakfast. This young lady doesn't uh, have to eat much for breakfast. Man, I have to have my big old bowl of Kellogg's or whatever it may be before I head out the door. 
God wants us to seek him even more passionately than eating breakfast in the morning. We should eat from his word. So how is your devotional life? That's a rhetorical question. How's your devotional life? Are you seeking God with all your heart? I believe we're living in some exciting times and we need to be closer to God now than we've ever been in our life to get those signals from him. And I believe this word is more relevant today than it was back in the apostles and the patriarchs' time. So let's get into it. I've been a professor for the last five years and I can tell you I've been a pastor, I've been a ministerial director, and I've been a professor. And I think I've been the most chaotic busy now that I've been a professor. What do you think, Judy? I've got nine courses that I teach, and this semester I have 200 students. We have a bumper crop of incoming freshmen this year. Good problem to have. But I am up early and to bed late. And there are some mornings I have to choose. Boy, that lesson, that course, that presentation, that lecture is not super polished that I'm going to give this morning, but I'm going to spend time with you, God. I've got to start my day with you. All right, so let's go to the second meaning. Now, who said us? Us, all right. Us, there you go. That is absolutely correct. The pearl of great price not only symbolizes Christ and the eternal riches of Christ we found in his word, but it also symbolizes us. It symbolizes lost sinners. Jesus' supreme purpose of coming to the earth is found in Luke chapter 19. Let's go there. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And children, you will recognize this story as Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Climbed up in the sycamore tree to see Jesus. And I see a double seeking in this chapter. Zacchaeus did whatever it took to see Jesus, even shaming himself, scooting up a sycamore tree. How did a short little runt of a guy get up to that first limb? I can just, uh, that's kind of a hilarious uh, picture. You know, he was, he, maybe he had someone toss him up, I don't know. But I see a double seeking, not only was Zacchaeus seeking for Jesus, but Jesus was seeking for Zacchaeus. And notice what it says in chapter 19, verse 10. This is Christ's purpose, why he came to planet Earth. For the Son of Man has come to get wealthy and rich. Well, he, he left all that behind. The Son of Man has come to seek popularity. No, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That word seek is very interesting in the original zeteo. It means to do whatever it takes to secure that object or that person. Do whatever it takes. Was Jesus willing to do whatever it takes to secure us? Did he give up all to secure us, the pearl of great price? Absolutely. Look at a cross-reference, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 8, chapter 18 says almost the identical thing. Then it goes into a story. 
Matthew chapter 18, look at verse 11. Matthew 18 and verse 11 reads, For the Son of Man has come to what? To save that which was lost. And then goes into this story about a, a farmer, a herder, had how many sheep? hundred sheep, and one of those little rascals goes missing. And that herdsperson valued that lost sheep more than the 99 that were safe in the fold, and he went after seeking that one straying sheep so he could find it. These verses illustrate so well how we are the pearl of great price, and Jesus gave up all heaven to secure us. There is a commentary that Ellen White wrote on the parables. You know it is Christ's object lessons, right? And in her chapter where she talks about the pearl of great price, page 117, this paragraph absolutely stuns me. She talks about this double meaning. The, the, we're the merchant people seeking Christ, and Christ is the heavenly merchant seeking us. Notice what she says. Christ, the heavenly merchant man, seeking goodly pearls, saw in lost humanity the pearl of great price. In man and woman, defiled and ruined by sin, he saw the possibilities of redemption. Hearts that had been the battleground of the conflict with Satan. You know, right up the road here is battlefield, right? Civil War battle fought right here. It's, she says, hearts that have been the battleground of the conflict with Satan and that have been rescued by the power of love are more precious to the Redeemer than are those who have never fallen. Stop there for a second. Jesus has all these other pearls, all these other gems, all these other unfallen planets unfallen beings this planet in rebellion is more valuable than all the other worlds now look would you rather have a brand new Lexus right off the showroom floor or a beat up old car that's been smashed I used to say or a beat up VW bug and some people say oh I'd rather have the beat up VW bug and restore it you know now, this, this car is in the, the junkyard. It has been smashed. It is no longer any use to it. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Hearts that have been the battleground of the conflict with Satan, that have been rescued by the power of love, are more precious to the Redeemer than are those who have never fallen. God looked upon humanity not as vile and worthless. He looked upon it in Christ. Saw it as it might become through redeeming love. He collected all, all, all the riches of the universe and laid them down in order to buy us the pearl of great price. May I just speak uh, personally to your heart right now? You are 
of infinite value to the heart of God. My students fill out something called a personal spiritual history where they talk about their upbringing and their spiritual journey before they came to Southern and since they've been at Southern and what they would like that journey to look like. And I tell you, some of our students really battle with low self-esteem. They didn't have a dad in the picture. They didn't have parents in the picture. And they do the cutting stuff, and they've had suicidal thoughts, and they're in really dark places. And this passage assures me, it assures you, that you are infinitely valuable to the heart of God. God loves you. God has a bright, special future, a plan for your life. I am so thankful for that. This shows the inestimable value of the human soul. Like the merchant in the parable who sold all he had to purchase the one pearl, God gave up everything to secure us, not with silver or gold, but with his own precious blood, Jesus purchased us. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18-19. Here's a follow-up thought that hits me. Not only do we have infinite, inestimable value in the heart of God, but this is how God feels about the people around us. Our work associates, our family, our neighbors next door. God loves them with an everlasting love. If God cares that much about the lost, can we do any less? After all, we're servants of Christ, ambassadors of the King. God took Abram, Abraham, his name came to be, out of Ur the Chaldees and had him go 1,200 miles up over the Fertile Crescent to the crossroads of civilization in Canaan so he could be a light to the pagan nations. That's how much God loved the pagans and wanted to get their attention. And then on the flip side, a few hundred years later, he had Daniel and his three friends go the opposite direction, 1,200 miles back over the Fertile Crescent to pagan Babylon to be a light in the heathen king's court because God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to be his child. And I believe that's why God has placed you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your community. It's not by accident. It's by divine design. God has put you there to be a light to that neighbor next door, to that person that works with you in your workplace. He wants you to reach that person for his kingdom. How deliberately and earnestly should our search be for the lost? June 23, 2018, 12 members of a soccer team over in Thailand just finished their practice for the day, their 25-year-old coach had grown up exploring the deep recesses of this Thai cave. And he challenged them, let's go for an hour or two back into the heart, the bowels of this cave, and let's explore. And what turned out to be an afternoon adventure ended up an absolute hellish nightmare because as they were back in there, it was ahead of monsoon season, but a monsoon came, a violent thunderstorm, floods, rains, 
began to flow through the cracks and crevices and into that cave, and they were literally unable to retrace their way back out that main channel because it was all flooded. They were two and a half miles back in the recesses of this cave. Immediately, the world found out about it. Word quickly spread. I'm going to read this because I want to get it straight. Listen to how an international community came together to do whatever it takes to save these 13. 10,000 rescue workers and volunteers quickly converged from around the world, including Thai Navy SEALs, the U.S. Air Force 353rd Special Operations Unit that was at that time stationed in Okinawa, a hundred divers from Great Britain, Australia, Japan, China, and elsewhere, 50 to 60 doctors, representatives from a hundred governmental agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers. In addition, there were 10 military helicopters and seven ambulances, as well as hundreds of people working to pump more than uh, one billion liters of water out of the cave to try to drop the level for these, these 13 to get out. The international team had one goal in mind to safely extract the 13 from the bowels of the earth. British divers discovered the group about two and a half miles inside the cave on July 2, 2018, but they had a real predicament on their hand. Those channels were completely full of water they had to have scuba gear on to get out, and they actually um, used anesthesia to knock the 13 out in a semi-state of unconsciousness, so forth. They sedated them so that they could transport them two and a half hours underwater, and praise God, between July 8 and 10, all 13 were rescued. One former Thai Navy SEAL, Saman Kunan, actually gave up his life. The Thai government and international community vowed to do whatever it takes to save the 13. Don't you love that motto? Whatever it takes. Are you willing, am I willing, to do whatever it takes to reach the people in my circle of influence? Do you have family members that don't know Jesus, that don't know this precious truth that will enable us to go through that end time and see Jesus when he comes? Do you have work associates? Do you have neighbors that God has put a prayer burden on your heart? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to make out a 10 most wanted list, not the FBI wanted list, but write the names of these people on a piece of paper and begin praying diligently for them? Are you willing to step across the property line? Take courage, as Pastor Aaron said. It's a little fearful to knock on doors, a little fearful to greet that neighbor, but are you willing to get acquainted and build that friendship? Are you willing to serve practical needs? Are you willing to, at the appropriate time, to give that glow track or that Bible study, whether online or in person? Are you willing to invite them to that next evangelistic meeting you do? God wants to use you to reach those 13 that are lost 
all around you. Praise God. I'm no longer searching for buried treasure. I never found it, by the way. Never found it. I found something far greater in value and worth. I have found the pearl of great price, Jesus and his righteousness, and the lost in my sphere of influence that God is asking me to reach.